illusions about the fact that I'm a pure amateur in this field uh, and have been discussing this book and talking about it with you guys as, uh, as uh, one amateur comparing notes with others. Um, but uh, Dr. Sturgis is our real expert uh, in this field, so we're delighted to have her uh, with us here tonight. Uh, so, Dr. Sturgis, how are you? I am doing very well. Thank you for having me tonight. It's exciting to see everybody here and and uh, ready to talk about some Orson Scott Card. That's right. That's right. So, I, and I know that uh, I know you've been very uh, generous to join us. Of course, uh, Dr. Sturgis actually just finished uh, just finished uh, uh, teaching her class on her the first session of her class on Harry Potter. Uh, so we're getting her at the end of a long day here. So I want to keep her too long. But I did. I did. Uh, you know, Amy was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, we've been doing mostly sort of a close reading through the text and, and sort of discussing our way through the major themes and ideas of the story. Um, it would be great if you could sort of give a little context uh, for the book. I know one of the things that you do a lot of is looking at sort of the, the, the historical development of science fiction um, over time. Where do you see uh, Ender's Game uh, sort of fitting into that big picture? What What... What do you find really, really significant about this book? There's uh, a lot of important stuff to, to unpack from, from Ender's Game. When I talk about it in class, I usually think about it in, in three uh, main ways. First, what it means uh, at this particular moment in the history of science fiction, uh, that it was a joint winner of the Hugo and Nebula awards uh, because the Hugo Award represents uh, a, a gift that is given praise that is given from the uh, the, the fans uh, anyone who's a, a member of, um, of the world science fiction uh, uh, community can vote on the Hugos and so uh, it's it's the one f from fans to uh, to a, a work that they they love the nebula award is from uh, the professionals the people who are uh, in fact fellow writers and there had been a split after the new wave in uh, in science fiction where uh, those awards often did not go to the same work and that was because there was a division within the community as to what what science fiction was doing and where it was going and uh, and this was a work that really does didn't represent um, a kind of new wave sensibility but um, but was wildly popular with both the critics and with uh, the general popular fans. And so uh, it's, it's interesting to see sort of a coming together. It, it represents a kind of consensus then about what science fiction is doing again. Um, it's also important that it was uh, a work that was um, presented as and marketed as uh, an adult mainstream science fiction work, uh, but it had a young person as a protagonist. There's right. uh, clear connections you can draw with works that came before that, like Frank Herbert's Dune, that came after it, like Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. Um, but at this point, you have young adult fiction, and it was not published as such. And so it's interesting to see how uh, childhood is portrayed here and, uh, and how the child protagonist is used for a very adult message. But most importantly, the big, the big thing that I'm interested in, um, I view science fiction as a conversation, and as you point out, a, a conversation in history. Right. And I think this is one of the most important voices in uh, the conversation about the nature of war 
there was a real shift, a fundamental shift in the science fiction genre's conversation about war at the end of the 1950s. For for a good 20-year uh, period, the technology of war, because of the bomb, the development right. of the bomb, the right. use of the bomb, that's where the attention was. And then there was this shift uh, to focus on the experience of war, the ethics of war, and the overarching question of how is a society um, that was prepared to defend itself by military strength um, could create and maintain a sense of civic virtue. And it seems to me there's there's a couple of, well, several really important voices in this conversation. Um, look at Robert Heinlein's Starship Troopers, uh, which is is the kind of the first uh, voice kicking off this new discussion. Uh, you have Joe Haldeman's response to that and to the Vietnam conflict with the Forever War. And then you have Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game. And then uh, I, I think falling... Following from that, you have works like um, John Scalzi's Old Man's War series and uh, Lois McMaster Bujold's Vorkosigan series. And so I've, I'm interested in how these works talk to each other because really, um, not only quote unquote military science fiction, but mainstream science fiction uh, hasn't, hasn't been the same since this conversation mm -hmm. shift. And the questions about how we experience war, what war does to us, um, what are the ethics of what we're willing to do to ourselves in order to wage right. war, um, and then how do you, what's left if we're willing to do, um, <laughs> you know, the unthinkable in order to wage war, what's left afterwards, how do you have a notion of what, uh, of what civic virtue is, what the good, um, the good life and the good citizen and the good state is after that. Um, that's just become uh, a bunch of questions that have, have uh, filtered into the genre large, larger as a, as a whole. So I think situating it in uh, in terms of that conversation is an important way to see just uh, you know just what it brought to the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, there's uh, um, uh, Kate Neville was saying that you know it it it's also seems to be a very interesting view of of aliens, um, you know, and sort of thinking about how it kind of fits into the 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 way that the the that the relationship between humans and aliens was was depicted as well. Absolutely. Uh, and that goes back to an even earlier tradition. Um, in that sense, uh, uh, Card really uh, knew his stuff. Um, the way that, that aliens uh, are portrayed as, in some ways, um, uh, more human than human, even as they're completely alien and other. Um, right. Yeah, absolutely. And that also... Brings in a lot of contemporary issues um, that that Card was responding to as well. Right, right. Alien is metaphor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And we, that was one of the things. It was certainly it was one of the themes that I was most interested in. Um, you know, is the, the way throughout the book um, that we see, of course, you know, ending up with uh, with Ender acting as speaker for the dead, and before that, the significance of his 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 empathy with the buggers and his ability to think like the buggers. But even you know, going back to him putting on the bugger mask at the beginning, you know, the way that you have that that continual parallel between uh, you know the uh, the, the buggers and astronauts, you know, the, from from that original game, you know, and the way that the humans and the and, and the buggers are, are 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 sort of 
paralleled w with each other and even made sort of foils for each other throughout the story was certainly something I was very interested in as we were discussing our way through it. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, wonderful. I, now, I, as I said, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be, be 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 greedy and keep you too long here. But uh, uh, but I know you know you've just been sort of touching on some uh, some things I've mentioned before, uh, and you, you know would love to to say again that the opportunity that people have to take your history of science fiction class. Uh, Doctor Sturgis teaches a two semester uh, science fiction course at uh, at Mythgard, um, which is sort of going through the the the, the history of science fiction. I just love to let people hear a little bit more from you about the kind of stuff you do in that class. Oh, thank you so much. I would love to see all of you there. Um, we are going to be offering it again in the fall and spring, so fall of, of 2014 and spring of 2015, each for 12 weeks. And this is how I break the classes down. The first is from modern beginnings to the golden age. So I start with proto-science fiction, why we can go all the way back to Plato's Republic and consider it science right. fiction. Uh, and then focus on how the genre really gets started as a modern genre with um, with authors I, I consider to be sort of the, the four cornerstones of uh, contemporary science fiction. Mary Shelley, Edgar Allan Poe, Jules Verne, and H.G. Wells. I think each of those um, writers brought something to science fiction that has stayed with science fiction ever since. Mm -hmm. And so then we track uh, science fiction through the pulp era. It gets its name, science fiction, and then once we have a name, then people uh, sort of retrofit, figure out what came before that fits under that title. And we go all the way through the experience of World War II and into the Golden Age, culminating in the 1960s. Then the second part of the class picks up again in the 1960s with the new wave, which creates this radical break um, and uh, a, a break that ends up healing, uh, the, making science fiction even stronger than it was before. And that's where we hit uh, Ender's Game, among other works, uh, and talking about the conversations then that come as science fiction becomes more diverse in the kind of sciences that are counted as uh, science and science fiction, not just the hard sciences, but the so-called softer sciences and the humanities, everything from from uh, linguistics uh, to, to sociology and anthropology. Also more diverse as uh, works are translated into different languages and new populations are brought in as uh, more diverse in that uh, the, the the science fiction author doesn't necessarily have to be a uh, you know a white uh, man from either the United <laughs> States or England, and right. so uh, you know what happens then and why science fiction is so vibrant now. Uh, and so we we follow it up all the way up to the present day and uh, new media and science fiction podcasting and and uh, and other sorts of um, uh, you know new incarnations of the same conversations. So uh, try to, to follow those conversations and the big question, what it means to be human, which is what all science fiction is, is ultimately wrestling with. And my, my thoughts are that science fiction in trying to answer the question, what it means to be human, um, both uh, mirrors the moment in which it's written, 
So however far away the planet is or however fuzzy the alien or whatever, it's still about that particular author's uh, uh, here and now, dealing with anxieties and, and uh, concerns of the age. But it also, science fiction has traditionally served as a catalyst for change. So it not only uh, mirrors what's going on, but it also affects what's going on. And so we try to trace that all the way through. Mm -hmm. Great. It's, it's, it's a really wonderful... Um, uh, uh, opportunity for people to really. T I, I know that you know. I, for instance, I have always loved fantasy. I, I've 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 been a dabbler in science fiction, you know, throughout my reading career, um, and it's such a great opportunity to get a chance to sort of go systematically through the development of the genre to 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 have uh, such a. Such an engaging and learned guide to to sort of uh, help to to plug gaps that you might have and uh, you know draw your attention to stuff that you didn't know about. So oh, it's just a, it's just a great so opportunity. So I'm really I really hope that lots of people will take advantage of uh, of this chance. As I say, it's going to be in fall of this year and spring of next year. Um, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity to come and, and invite your listeners and, uh, and community here to, uh, to check it out. I appreciate it. Very good. No problem. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Okay. Excellent. Um, yeah, I can't. I just really can't say enough about Dr. Sturgis's classes. Uh, they, uh, you know, you can uh, ask any of our Mythgard students who have taken classes with her. Uh, she is, as you can tell, enormously a, a, an enormously high energy teacher, uh, and uh, just just really really engaging to go through this stuff with. And, and you just can't have a better guide uh, for this uh, for this material. So if you're interested in science fiction or you'd like to 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 learn a little bit more about the you know about science fiction as a genre. Uh, this is really this is really a great great opportunity. So anyway, um, let's go on to some of the questions you guys asked last time. Um, we got through sort of mostly through chapter fourteen uh, in the uh, by, by the end of last class, um, but I didn't get to a few of those questions that I said I wanted to uh, to bring in. Um, so let me do that. Uh, these are questions I received by email. Uh, Gerald Michael asks. What is the motivation for the high level of IF security? The IF was unsuccessful in attempts to communicate with the buggers, so they can't really be worried about the buggers finding things out from Earth public media or operating a spy network in the solar system. Yeah, because, I mean, wh wh what are they going to do? Like, hijack the human communication system and, like, listen in and read people's minds or something, right? Um, now, of course, I'm being sarcastic, but... Um, but you're right about the fact that they certainly don't seem to suspect that that kind of thing is possible. Um, so I'm not. I, I'm. 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 On the one hand, uh, making jokes about it, but I'm. I. I totally agree with the, with the premise of your question there, Gerald. Um, is the IF worried that they won't be able to maintain their control of people and resources if the secrets become public knowledge? Is it organizational inertia from before they concluded there was no way to communicate with the buggers? Is it a reflexive attitude of military organizations? Or would public knowledge impair their ability to find and develop someone like Ender? Um, Joe, I, I really like the directions that you're thinking there at the end of your question. Um, and those, I would I mean, to some extent, I could see all of those things being true. Um, the reflexive attitude of military organizations kind of sounds right. But I, but you know, I mean, 
your question itself sort of suggests that it's kind of got to be something more than that, right? I mean, I think of, for instance, the way that the pilot of the tug that they took out to Eros is permanently positioned. Like, he's not even allowed to go home. The poor guy probably has a family or something. Anyway, he's not allowed to leave, right? You know, oh, you were commandeered to go to Eros, and now you're permanently stuck. I mean, that's pretty extreme right there. Um so, oh, I'm sorry. I apologize. Here I am reading and not like showing you my slides. So let me do that. Yeah. Hi. How about that? Yeah. Is that better? Here we go. Look, you can actually see it. Look at that. Okay. Sorry. Thank you, uh, Neil, for pointing out and Ed for pointing out that I neglected to share my screen yet. Okay. So it's, you know, by halfway through the class, I'll have myself together here. Um, Good. Yes. All right. Um, so, so anyway, I, I, I think that there's got to be, you know, the, the, their secure, their attention to security is so active and so intense. It's hard to see it as simply a kind of inertia or a reflexive attitude. Those don't seem sufficient. Uh, the, those they don't seem to me like sufficient explanations. So, what then? Um, to me, I, 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 I think. A couple different things. Um, on the one hand, they don't really know about the buggers. That is, they believe that they've always failed to communicate with the buggers. Um, they don't think that they can communicate with the buggers, but that doesn't necessarily mean they are 100% convinced that there is no way the buggers could ever learn anything from their communications or anything about them. I think that, to some extent, it kind of seems like their ignorance about the way in which buggers communicate seems to increase their paranoia, um, and therefore their, um, their secrecy. Exactly, as Neil just said, they don't know about the buggers' technology. So, on the one hand, I think and that's to, and that's in my mind sort of the most benign interpretation of the high level of IF security that they're just basically saying better safe than sorry right you know we're going to maintain absolute top security um, you know highest possible levels of secrecy just in case they're a, they're capable of you know figuring stuff out um, but I think there are less benign interpretations of it too. And again, Gerald, you're suggesting them, and I think that they make sense. Um, would pu public knowledge impair their ability to find and develop someone like Ender? Are they worried they won't be able to maintain their control of people and resources? Um, the fact that IFs, you know, you say this for the IF people in Ender's game. I get the I get the impression that Colonel Graf, for instance, genuinely believes in the bugger war, right? That is, it's not just like a nineteen eighty four kind of thing, right? We're gonna we're 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 trying to beef up the propaganda about war, um, to keep the public afraid so that so that we can stay in power and, you know, we're just, you know, we, we want to carry on manipulating the public. I mean, it's not that they're not manipulating the public. It's not that they're not maintaining the, the, their, their position in power. And we can see the political significance of the role of the fleet, like the instant the war is won, and therefore the unquestioning support of IF um, you know, it be becomes unnecessary now. The league war breaks out right away, right? So, so we can see that there's some, there's some, uh, you know, it, the 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 power of the IF is indeed linked to the bugger war. But again, 
every impression that we get, all of those inside conversations that we get between the officers um, at IF, Graf, and others, um, does seem to me to suggest they genuinely believe in the bugger war, that they're not just, you know, this is not something that they're just whomping up in order to maintain their own power. So that seemed, that would, that you know, the, the sort of most ultra-cynical reading of IF security also doesn't seem to me very satisfying in the context of this story. Um, but I do think there there does seem to be an element of um, I think of the comments that they make, like the comments that that Razor that I was called a Razor Mackham again that Mazer Rackham makes about um, um, civilians, right? When he questions Ender, when when they have that you know the the near disastrous battle that they almost lose um, and uh, Mazer Rackham is chewing them out afterwards about how you can't afford to absorb losses like that and Ender says you know, uh, you know I can't I can't you know I can't operate if I'm not willing to take risks and um, and Mazer Rackham says oh yeah you know you're right I, I was just totally um, you know but you have to get used to superior officers or worse civilians saying that to you um, you know, some some there are a few comments like that which sort of suggest that one of the motivations behind the security is to try to reduce the level of civilian scrutiny. Um, and Graf is sort of the ultimate example of that, right? I mean, the scrutiny that ends up being directed at Graf after the fact in his trial in his court martial um, seems to me to be. You know, we're told that. It was Colonel Graf's trial, but it was essentially the trial of Ender Wigan. You could also say, in another sense, that it was um, um, uh, it was it was the um, trial of IF, right? I mean, it, it's it. You know, we we talked from the very beginning about to what extent uh, you know Colonel Graf was the represent was the representative of humanity. You know, using Ender as a tool um, to a larger extent. He kind of is a representative of IF, right? I mean, he, he is he is sort of the uh, the face of IF for us in this story. You know, we know he's not, uh, and he's kind of an interesting choice for that, right? He's the head of the battle school, but he's not. You know, he's only a colonel. Um, you know, he's not. Um, he's not. He's he, he's not an admiral in the fleet or anything, um, and yet. Um, you know, we see him as as the one who is um, really sort of the 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 poster child for the IF, um, and he is uh, not wanting, and he's not wanting to be second guessed. What he's doing certainly would be second guessed. Will in fact be heavily second guessed. Is being second second. Uh, um, uh, second guessed even by the people around him. Um, so I, that does seem to me an element um, that IF just wants a free hand to do what they're doing and they can best achieve that uh, if most people are not allowed to even know what they're doing. So those are the things that seem to me to be involved in that. But it's a really good question. I think it, I think it opens up some interesting, um, interesting sort of uh, 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 lines of thought there. Um, uh, yeah, Sean says their methods would upset the population. Certainly true. Um, okay, let's see. Tom had some thoughts on tigers. The difference between us and tigers is at least threefold. One, we are far more cruel and destructive because we can and do contemplate the utter extinction of those we consider to be our prey or our enemies. Often in our history, we have gone far beyond the thought of, exter far beyond the thought of extermination. 
too. We are also far more aware than tigers. We can see the horrors we are capable of perpetrating through indifference or intention. We can draw back from them and say they are wrong. We can fight against those of us who do perpetrate them. We can name them monsters. And three, we can lie to ourselves about it all, pretending that the people who commit these atrocities are different from us. We are humans. They are monsters. To call them inhuman would in fact be redundant. And yet there is, this is a lie we love to tell ourselves. Every monster in our history has been one of us. The very fact that Ender can come to understand the buggers and to love them underlines the fact that human and monster are all too often the same. Yeah, and of course, and I, I love the way that this book um, really develops that in so many different and complicated ways. The way in which those two categories of human and monster are introduced so starkly from the very beginning. And the number of different ways, and not just trite ways, if if the whole story were really just about um, you know, oh, there are horrible monsters over there, and they're going to attack and kill us all and bite off our heads, and, and then in the end we're like, oh, but you know, they might look scary and weird and kind of like insects, really quite a lot like insects, and that's kind of gross, let's face it. Um, but, you know, really at heart, they're kind of nice too, and they're not all that different from us, so can't we all get along? That would be you know, that would be a nice and it would be as, you know, an edifying moral, but it's, it would be, um, it would be trite, I think. Um, and, uh, and, but this book does a lot more than that. Um, and the way that it invites us, the, uh, the many different ways in which it invites us to, you know, from that initial stark dichotomy of the humans and the buggers, you know, the, the buggers and the astronauts, to, uh, uh, you know, and the, the, the different ways that it invites us to look at both similarities and differences uh, between them, even down to, you know, what we were talking about last time, the actual story from the Hive Queen um, about how the essence of the evolution of the buggers, the, 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 the turning point in the history of the buggers as an intelligent race, what enabled them to really become an intelligent race and to develop and to spread was not becoming perfect killing machines, as even Valentine, remember, gentle, compassionate Valentine, suggests on the raft, right, humans didn't evolve to sit around on lakes. They evolved to be killers, um, you know, to keep those tigers from, uh, fr from, uh, from, you know, being at the top of the food chain. And, uh, and of course, we learn that the buggers, in fact, it wasn't... Um, being better at killing. Killing was what they generally did. The default was one when a new queen was born, um, the new queen would be killed or would be driven out, right? And the turning point was when a queen, a sort of a, a genetic freak, apparently, queen was born who wanted peace, right? Who wanted harmony with her sister. Um, and to live together and work together as sisters in a common cause. And that was the difference. That was the turning point. And of course, that's the step that Ender's making, right? That's, that's the step that's recapitulated, that has been um, sort of pictured in Valentine from the beginning, right, as the sister figure for him um, and the two who go together and to go off to form a new colony uh, at the end just as we have Ender and the Hive Queen, uh, you know, the, the Hive Queen, you know, larva or pupa or whatever it is, um, 
that he goes off with at the end, um, you know, again, that 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 too is like a recapitulation of that moment um, in bugger history. So again, the, the the much more complicated way in which these two things are are brought together. But again, it it reveals another one of those lies that humans are telling themselves. Um, so anyway, I think. Tom's analysis here is really great. I don't have uh, uh, too much to add to it, um, uh, but um, I just wanted to just wanted to share that. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Megan uh, Vance is wanting to bring this back to Ender and Peter. Um, you know, uh, Ender says he wants Peter to love him. Yes, and of course, there's that moment which we didn't even really talk about all that much. That moment when. Peter does say that he loves Ender, that he's sorry, right? Um, now, the thing with Peter is you can never believe anything he says, right? By definition. Um, you know, there's that wonderful moment. Um, I, you know, wonderful in a, like, horribly creepy way. But that wonderful moment when he's talking to, uh, to Ender and Valentine at the beginning, and he says, you know, I'm going to... And he tells them about how he's going to kill Ender later on, right? And he even says, "And you're going to remember this conversation, but then you're going to you're going to doubt yourself and think, oh no, that can't really be the case,' right? I mean, the way it, Peter makes it impossible for you really to believe anything he says, um, because he's he he's constantly not only being manipulative, being manipulative, but saying. I'm going to be manipulative now, right? In fact, I'm going to manipulate you in this way. And then he does the thing, and he does the thing convincingly, um, convincingly enough to um, uh, to really invite you to question um, whether or not uh, uh, he might, but, 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 but wait, you know, yeah, yeah, he said he was going to be manipulative, but might he be genuine this time? Anyway, it's, um, uh, it's, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky. Um, because, as Megan is pointing out, we do still get that love dynamic between Peter and Ender. As much as Peter serves throughout most of the book as a kind of, um, you know, extreme case, right? You know, he's the... Uh, he's the... Like, the... the, the the version of the monstrous human, right? I mean, you know, he's the um, he's the poster child for everything horrible that Ender doesn't want to be. Um, you know, he's that terrifying image that Ender sees in the mirror. Um, but he says he just wants Peter to love him. And remember, again, we didn't talk about it too much at the time, but there's that really poignant moment at the end when he says even, the, you know, he talks about Valentine and how much he loves her, and he adds, even if she loves Peter more, right? Um, you know, his jealousy of Peter over Valentine's love, again, sort of points to this similar kind of, um, uh, kind of um, bond. Anyway, I, 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 so anyway, Megan, I, I, I agree with you that that, that bears more thinking out, um, and to what extent, um, you know, we... Uh, Peter and Ender would seem to be, at first glimpse, a version of the like pre-bugger evolution thing, right? Where the one king, you know, they're not queens in this case, where, you know, Peter trying to kill Ender seems like the old-fashioned bugger queen uh, trying to kill or drive out the new bugger queen, right? Um, that seems to map onto that pretty well. 
Um, but again, Ender, at the very least, Megan, right? Ender is the the new species, right? The one who wishes he could reach out, even if ultimately Peter's not really reach out to a bull. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one thing that one of one of the thought about tigers briefly. Um, the tiger is an interesting choice because, of course, one of the things that's most notable about there's there's one thing that tigers. Um, This separates tigers from both humans and buggers. Again, if you sort of imagine, because the thing to remember too about tigers is that it's not quite fair. And this is the one, Tom. This is the one quibble I would have with uh, the first two, um, the first two points, especially that you make, um, is that it's not it's not quite fair to contrast current humans with current tigers, right? Because the argument is that if humans had not developed into more successful killers than tigers, then tigers would have been dominant and presumably would have evolved. Just as in the buggers, we see what happens if ants or something like ants were to evolve into an intelligent species, um, you know, instead of something like monkeys or something like squirrels. Graph suggests at one point something like squirrels, you know, the creatures that 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 Peter likes to torture for fun it all goes back to Peter. But anyway, um, uh, so so the, the the thought experiment there is not like us compared with modern tiger. But again, what tigers would be had they developed into intelligent species? So what the you know the parallel to the buggers would be had it been tigers. Um, Thundercats <laughs> suggests Neil. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, uh, exactly. Um, but but again, in, 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 in engaging for a second in that thought experiment of what would an intelligent evolved tiger species look like, the thing that tigers, that separates one thing, that separates tigers from humans and from buggers, um, very pointedly from buggers, is that they're solitary. Right? They're not communal creatures. Tigers are, tigers are lone hunters. Um, and that's of course one of the the, the 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 connection you know the relationship between the individual and you know the group as a whole has been something we've been looking at all the way through this whole question of of choice and self-sacrifice and being used as a tool and using others as tools and you know the, the hive mind of the buggers and all of these things um, with tigers it's notably different right you know um, they're they are so to me that's one thing that really jumped jumps out at me that when I imagine uh, tigers, I can't imagine, in fact, tigers becoming a dominant species, because if they're not going to cooperate, then they're not going to get too far, um, again, as the hive queen would tell us. Um, but uh, but anyway, one more point, then we'll, then we'll get to talking about the film. Kay Ben Abraham says, I read Ender's Game thinking of my toddler son and constantly questioning Graf and the other's assumption that only through pain, isolation, and spirit-breaking methods could Ender reach his full potential to do the work the world needed him to do. 
The story itself seemed to contradict this assumption. If suffering, abandonment, and gut-level belief that no help exists anywhere in the universe are the strongest allies in reaching heights of achievement, why was Ender's success predicated on the near-instinctive trust and understanding between himself, Eli, and the others he commanded? Was Graf's legal defense team correct, that no other method could have equipped Ender to lead the fleet? What does it mean that, in the end, the seemingly needed genocide was not in fact needed? That the ultimate barrier to peace and prosperity for the human race was the inability to communicate with the enemy, not the en not humanity's need for bigger guns and better brains to wield them? Um, Kay, there's a really great question, and I think there, there, there are two issues there. I agree with you, Kay, about the irony of this, and, and that is the, the first irony that you point out, that you know, you've got this 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 on isolation, right? Um, and as you say, like this is the only way that it's possible. I mean, that this is Graf's prime. I mean, I would say his primary strategy, right? You know, from the beginning with Ender, and um, and yet, as you say, in the end, he succeeds. You know, the success of the fleet that he's running at the end is based upon the intimate connection between him and the others and how they are operating. They are looking from the outside like a bugger fleet, um, as Mazarakin shows him. Um, so, what do we think of that? What do we think about that? Is it is it just a contradiction? Is there an irony in there? It's I mean, because of course... They obviously respect this about how Ender operates, right? They take advantage of, and I mean, in part it reminds me, Kay, of what we were talking about, about the way in which, on the one hand, um, his battle, even going back to battle school, his battle tactics were like the buggers, um, but another way in which they were the opposite of the buggers, how on the one hand he is stressing the human side, that is of you know all you know breaking up his 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 uh, his army into the smallest groups that have ever been broken an army's ever been broken up into and putting them each in the hands of a capable commander who can make their own decisions uh, on the fly. Again, that's like the opposite of a you know exactly the uh, the opposite of a bugger army. And yet his emphasis on like our discipline has to be as tight as it is possible to be, and everybody has to be obey you know, has to be obeying me completely, which is very much like how the buggers operate. And at the time, I was talking about how those two things uh, seem to be in conflict, and those conflicts strike me, Kay, as being kind of parallel. And it's interesting that in the fleet commanding that we see at the end, he reconciles the first two. That is, he achieves, in essence, both. Um, that he's able to have the discipline and coordination, that, um, that near instinctive trust and understanding that you describe between himself and, and, his, and his commanders, leads him to have this, um, uh, this really tight... Um, you know, command structure and and uh, and and unity among the parts of his fleet, and yet again, the whole premise um, is on how his uh, his commanders are able to make their own choices and are therefore superior uh, to a bugger fleet. Um, 
you know, Carolyn Morehouse asks, did Ender succeed despite Graf's methods? You know, and this is, you know, and, and uh, you know, going back also, Kay, to your question as well, you know, Kay, you're basically, you know, you're questioning whether Graf was right. My question is, and I'm not sure what I think about this, I'm interested to hear what you guys think about this. Do you feel that the story invites us to disagree with that? That is, Graf is quite clear, right, on the fact that he did what was necessary and it worked, right? And he got off because he said, you know, the onus was on the other uh, team's lawyers to show, beyond a doubt, that Ender would have succeeded had I not trained him this way, right? And they couldn't prove that. Now, uh, that's a, I can't help but think, a pretty flimsy legal approach. Um, if, uh, if, the, if, the, if the other legal team did in fact accept that as the parameters of the case, they're pretty bad lawyers, I can't help but think. However, uh, nevertheless, um, the question though, again, is where are we? As readers in this, not just our personal reactions, not just, and this is what this is. This is a difficult exercise because sometimes, you know, when we read something like this, we can feel a kind of revulsion for a thing that a book seems to be suggesting. And I always want to stop and 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 really kind of pause and ask myself: Is this me responding to what the book is saying, or is this very response that I'm having? part of the story itself. Do you see what I mean by that? Um, does the story invite us to hear Graf, especially, you know, Kay, I assume you're thinking, why you, you refer to the, 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 the business of Graf's trial, so I assume that you also are thinking uh, primarily about that last conversation between Graf and Anderson at the beginning of chapter 14. When we hear that, um, Do you believe that the that the story is trying to convince us that Graf is actually correct? What do you think? What do you think? Um, yeah, uh, Kay, uh, who's with us live here too, adds um, the book's ending left me not condemning Graf and others like him but its story arc did leave me refusing their paradigm, their worldview, their basic assumptions about reality. That, I agree, okay. Um, I think at the end of the day, we can't get away from the fact that the very end of this book invites us, invite is perhaps too gentle a word for what it does to us at the end, um, but I'll stick with it for now, invites us to, to question the entire thing, right? What we learn is, you know, okay, as you were saying at the end of your, at the, at the end of your question here, <clears throat> um, what was really needed is an ability to communicate, not the need for bigger guns and better brains to wield them. The tragedy of the end of the story is not just the revelation that, you know, congratulations, Ender, you didn't realize it, but you're actually, um, you've actually, you know, murdered billions of people. Um, however, the real tragedy is the fact that we learn for a fact, not just 
probable, not just what if, we learn for a fact that the whole war was completely unnecessary. Um, and now again, I, I've said throughout, and I repeat, I still hold that this book won't let us simply throw the IF under the bus. I don't think, and it's one of the things I admire about this book, um, is that again, if it just turned out that the I, you know, that 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 the, you know, the the military, you know, and the war machine, that they were all just evil from the beginning and just thoroughly corrupt and and, and entirely horrible, they're not. They really seem to, they 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 seem genuinely to be to believe that humanity is in threat that it, that they have the future safety of humanity in their hands and that humanity is you know all of these innocent people on planet Earth are going to be slaughtered if they don't do something. They seem really to believe that. So again, it's not um, it's I, I think it makes the tragedy at the end so much richer when we learn that they actually were wrong about that. Um, yeah, yeah, and Kay was just saying the same thing. Um, their preemptive and cruel methods had strong logic behind them and were understandable. It was their first premises that were wrong. I agree. And Kay, so then, I, I, I see what you're doing there, Kay. You're going back and suggesting that, of course, it's their first premises that are wrong. Perhaps Graf's first premises about the training of Ender uh, are also wrong. Uh, very devious. Very clever there, Kay. I, 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 I totally see what you did. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, but it works, doesn't it? Totally worked. Totally worked. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Kate adds, uh, Kate Neville adds, uh, it's clear that Graf truly cares for Ender, but he is incapable of thinking of any alternative. Perhaps only a child can have the sort of clean mental palate to imagine a better way. And Kate, that also, therefore, seems to, to speak to the same tragedy, the, sta the same sort of bigger picture tragedy that, that Kay is pointing to, um, that had they not done that, right, um, had they not done to Ender what they did, part of what they're doing is conditioning him to respond in a particular way, the way that they believe needs to happen, right? Um, let, us, let us not just select Ender because he kicked Stilson to death, right, but let's, let's, let's nurture within him that impulse to kick Stilson to death, right? You know, that's that's the move. Um, let us let us isolate in him. Let us let us uh, um, condition him to respond to things in this way. To teach him, this is the only way that he can respond to things and still survive. You know, the only non-suicidal option for him is to respond in this way. But by doing that, they condition him. Not they they remove Kate exactly as you're saying the kind of clean mental palate right the child's open mindedness remember even Ender by the time he's in command school and he's been pretty well conditioned even at that point he still asks the question right um, maybe maybe we just need to communicate remember in that conversation that he has both first with Graf and then later on with 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 Rackham, right? Where he says, uh, you know, so the whole problem is that we can't communicate. And he's cautioned, like, don't start feeling bad for them, right? Um, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's 
it does seem to me um, that those first premises, which are indeed, as Kay points out, the things that the IF gets wrong, right, the things that are incorrect about Graf's point of view, it may well be that the approach that Graf takes is the best way to condition him to be an excellent soldier to accomplish the task that they believe needs to be accomplished. Maybe. I'm not even necessarily yielding that, but maybe that would be true. But the problem is that's not actually the task that needs to be accomplished. And think here about Locke and Demosthenes, right? Again, and I just love the way that that plot parallels and, and sort of illuminates things in the Ender plot so much there that I didn't see the first couple times I read this book. Um, you've got Locke and Demosthenes, right? You've got the warmonger in Demosthenes, and then you have the rational, peaceful Locke, right, who comes forward with the peace proposal. Um, that's what was needed, right? There was no... The IF did not allow there to be a Locke compromise with the buggers. Um, it was like all Demosthenes and no Locke. What they needed was Peter, right? They didn't have Peter, uh, the statesman. Um, oh, the irony. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, um, we should we should move to talking about the adaptation um, because I do want to talk about the film. Um, I don't have a huge lecture planned on the film. I mostly was interested in, I, 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 I'm interested to hear what kind of topics you would like to talk about. I mean, I'll definitely have a few things to say myself, um, but I am, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very willing to field sort of uh, topics and issues that you guys would really like to discuss uh, uh, from the film. Several things I found really interesting. Um, in general, I, I kind of liked the film. I, I, I expected it to, from what I had heard, <clears throat> I had heard lots of people objecting that they made all these horrible changes, that it was like unrecognizable from the book. Um, I didn't find that at all, actually. In fact, I would go so far as to say, I thought one of the biggest faults in this movie was that it tried to stay too close to the book. Um, it had... I had the experience that I so often have when I watch a film adaptation, which is a feeling of like a kind of imaginative whiplash. Um, when films are really short, even long films are really short. The unabridged Ender's Game takes 13 to 14 hours to narrate. Um, the movie is less than two hours long. A screenplay, even for a long movie, is about the length of, you know, it's like between 50 and 100 pages of a book, okay? You don't have that much time. There are some things that you can convey on film far more efficiently. You can take several pages of description and do them in a couple, second, in a couple seconds of camera work. Sometimes things like that can happen. But the fact is that you don't have much room. They're really short. So anytime you try to give a story in a film the same kind of plot trajectory that it has in the book, you almost always end up with that kind of, with that kind of whiplash. Um, and, and this, for instance, uh, to, I have that, ex that same experience 
in almost every single one of the Harry Potter films, for instance. Um, and I don't know, you know, one thing that those two sets of adaptations, the Ender's Game adaptation and the Harry Potter adaptations have in common is authorial involvement with the screenplay. Um, and I don't know if that's, um, uh, if that's, uh, you know, sort of part of the issue in some ways. Um, because, I don't know, I would be really interested to have a conversation with somebody who watched the film with careful attention and had never read the book before and maybe has read the book. So if there's anybody here who's gone through this class with me and they saw the film before reading the book, I'd love to hear from you. Um, but um, I, I, um, there were a bunch of times in watching the Ender's Game film, as, again, in the Harry Potter films too, where I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, I'm tracking with what's going on, but if I didn't know the book pretty darn well, I would never be able to follow what's happening here. I would have missed an enormous amount of the of the um, of the significance of what was going on. Um, there were just there were a bunch of times when that was happening in the film, and um, uh, so. Like, for instance, my goodness, Peter, right? Peter, who is reduced in the film to... He's on screen for, what, like 30 seconds in the one screen, one scene when he's choking Ender. And uh, um, and there's that one brief flash of him in the... You know, and when he sees his reflection is Peter. And, you know, the significance of which barely even... Uh, uh, is barely even conveyed, Right? Um, and when we met Peter, we don't get any of the, like, devious, super-intelligent, massively manipulative... He's just like a thug, basically. He's like the he's like a bully big brother who's like, I enjoy choking my younger brother. Um, there, was, there was none of that kind of psycho-deviousness uh, of Peter. That was totally, totally absent in the very, very brief depiction that we got of Peter. And therefore, also, this sense of... Um, establishing Peter as the, the sort of standard for monstrosity as he was, um, was, uh, was something I thought were, was, was sort of, was sort of missed. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, interesting. Chris, cool. Excellent. Chris Stevens has stepped forward to be my test subject here. Uh, and he did see the movie first. Okay. Okay. So you saw the movie first and really liked it. Um, but then after realizing it, uh, after reading it, realized how much was lost. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things, like the battle room sequences and stuff. Um, I was, uh, again, I was like tracking with it, but only because I'd, um, I, I just, I had that experience, again, as, as I've had in, in other adaptation films, where I'm following but I'm conscious of the fact that it's it's the book that I'm remembering, and I'm filling in gaps with what I'm remembering from the book, and hoping that's not going to mislead me. And you know, if they're actually making different choices from what I'm remembering from the book, um, but but just very frequently having that. Uh, um, well, good. I'm interested to hear both Chris and Eleanor. Good. Eleanor also is in the same position. Um, and uh, said thought the, the movie held together very coherently on its own. Um, good, good. I, I'm I'm interested to hear that. It, it was I, I wasn't sure that I would have felt that way. So um, 
Um, oh, good, Ian also. Very good. I'm glad to have several people who fit my the profile that I was looking for here. Um, yeah, Ian says, uh, I saw the film before I read the book and noticed there were a lot of moments where I could tell that the writers were cutting parts of the book, even though I had no idea what at the time. Um, several reviewers mentioned this when, when seeing the film. Yeah, but as I say, to me, it was. It, I, I felt that the problem was almost that it didn't deviate enough. Um, they still kept the same overall trajectory of the thing, right? We start with Ender in school on Earth, and then with Valentine and Peter, and then we go to battle school, and we have the Launchy group, and then we have him Salamander Army. I was shocked they did Salamander Army. Uh, I mean, I know we have to get Bonzo, I guess. Um, who was, how funny is it when Ender shows up at Salamander Army, and he's like six inches taller than Bo and Bonzo comes strutting up to him, and Bonzo comes up to like here on it. I was cracking up uh, when I saw that. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, was, that was absolutely hysterical. Uh, but anyhow, um, uh, uh, the the I was, I was shocked they did they did Salamander Army, um, and then they they uh, they you know but so then we, we we get Dragon Army and we don't get that many Dragon battles of course but um, but you know then we still got to go to command school and the meeting with 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 Mazer Rackham and then the, the the sequence of of uh, of simulations basic again things were taken out you know it was compressed. But the whole skeleton of the shape of the story was retained, and it's hard to rip through it. Um, anyhow, yeah. Oh no, the 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 size of Bonzo just absolutely cracked cracked me up. Um, Erica asks, how would I have liked them to deviate more from the book? I don't know. I mean, I'm not offering necessarily a separate script. What all I'm saying is, it's a it's a it's a difficulty with adaptations when you take. The skeleton of a story which you've developed in the book, right? Um, and then you say, okay, I've got about one-tenth the amount of space that I had, um, a little more than a tenth, you know, 15% of the time, but I'm still going to try to do as many of the things as I can in that time. And that's really hard, you know? So, like, I'm going to do, do all of battle school, except I'm going to do it all in, like, 25 minutes. You know, what takes, again, when you're reading the book aloud, and I'm, I'm, I'm using that time point as a point of comparison, because, you know, that's actual verbal delivery of the story, right? You know, not exactly like you'd see it on film, but, but again, you know, to, that, how long does the dialogue actually take when you're reading it aloud as written, right? Um, so the battle school portion alone of the book is like six hours at least, um, you know. So, but 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 we're gonna do all that in like you know twenty minutes. Um, there's just it's hard. There's not really time. Um, you know, how would I have wanted it? What would I have wanted them to do differently? I don't know. I'm not sure. But it's it's one of the fundamental challenges, and it's one of the reasons that I am very sympathetic. When um, when an adaptation departs really significantly, I don't like it. You know, to me, I am much more interested in what is really the story that's being told. You know, where is this film going? What is this story doing? Um, and comparing that to what the original story was doing. Um, you know, I 
I'm reminded of um, I'm reminded of that comment that Tolkien made when he was talking about film ad- possible film adaptations of the Lord of the Rings, and he was sa- and he said this thing which you know would be so shocking. To, I mean, you could just imagine how people would respond if this actually happened in the film, where he was saying, you know, if you if you need to cut the whole Helm's Deep sequence, go ahead and do that. Tolkien said that. Tolkien said that. Better to cut Helm's Deep than to cut some other stuff, right? Um, that is to say, better just to skip parts of the story entirely than try to whip through them and, and by doing this, um, you know, sort of miss the whole overall point. When I, as I've said before, when I read this book the first time, Battle School was what I loved most. But you know what? Um, in the film, I would almost have skipped Battle School. I mean, like, I don't know. I guess I said, I'm not a, I'm not, fortunately, I'm not a film adapter myself. I, I don't try, I don't pretend to be a screenplay writer. Um, but, um, but yeah, it, there's, you know, to me, the, the essence, you know, think about the themes that we've been talking about, that we've been focusing on so much. Um, and I would have loved to see those, de- they, they were touched on, many of them were touched on. Um, I would have loved to see them developed a little bit more. Um, and, you know, when you've got so much plot to try to rip through, uh, it's, um, it's, uh, it's tough. It's tough. Um, <laughs> oh, Ed, I didn't see that. Ed says, um, the actor playing Ender grew four inches during production, and the scenes were mostly shot out of order. Well, that brings up another point, um, which is the age of the actors uh, that they uh, that they staged. This was, to me, one of the most profound. Uh, I mean, the, there were a number of differences that I thought were really profound, far far transcending any simple plot uh, thing. Actually, I, if I could say one other thing that really made me crack up and laugh was the very, very, very different direction they took the character of Dap. <laughs> in, in this, I was like, whoa, okay. Um, but anyhow, um, the... Uh, the um, the ages of the kids, huge difference, huge, huge, huge difference. Um, Ender is not six at any time in this film. Now we have the extreme compression of the time frame, right? I mean, from the opening scene of the film until the closing scene of the film, how much film world time has passed in there? Very little, right? Like... Um, Less than a, um, less than a year, or something. Um, I, I I think that's the impression I got anyway. Um, so you know, so again, given that choice, and and I agree, there there there, there are difficulties there. Um, you know, Neil, I agree. Uh, Neil Ottenstein says uh, having more than one actor as Ender would have been problematic. Yeah, and of course you couldn't have the same guy playing six-year-old Ender and you know playing twelve-year-old Ender. Um, but you know, you could have had an eight-year-old Ender all the way through, but they didn't do that. And I actually think. It really draws out something that I haven't said anything about all the way through, but it's something that I always have. A, I, 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 it draws my attention to the fact that I disconnect myself from that while reading the book. Um, 
I find, if I really compel myself to imagine it, that is, if I really compel myself to imagine Ender being six years old from the beginning of the book through, you know, his launchy period, um, I find that that really strains my imagination. Um, I'm suspending disbelief hard. Um, and here I'm thinking of, of, of course, Tolkien's famous distinction between the willing suspension of disbelief and uh, secondary belief, you know, investing something, uh, you know, being able to fully invest yourself imaginatively in something, which is a very different thing. It's a positive thing, not a negative thing. Very different from merely suspending disbelief. Um, I am pushed to suspend disbelief in the description of how six-year-old Ender thinks and feels. Um, I just, I don't know. I mean, I'm willing to buy, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to go along with they're super precocious intellectually. I'm willing to go, that's fine, okay. You want me to believe that, you know, they're capable of learning the things that they're learning at, you know, age six? Oh, okay, I can go there. I, I've known really smart kids, uh, okay. I can believe that. Um, but the kind of emotional maturity, I, 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 I have a really hard time. Even, um, even, uh, even physical maturity. Um, I mean, I have a six-year-old son right now, and I disbelieve in how easy it would be for him to, I, I, I don't know. I just like the way that uh, the kinds of things that Ender is able to do physically without uh, any kind of extreme training. I just, I just, I have a hard time with it. I just, I, I really, I could be wrong, and maybe you know, six-year-olds are perfectly capable of that. And it is kind of funny. My, I have two sons. My younger son right now is at the age when Ender is at the beginning of the book, and my older son is exactly at the age that Ender's at at the end of the book. So I have like exactly the bookends of the career of Ender Wigan in my household right now. Um, and I, again, I find I find both of them kind of uh, uh, kind of kind of challenging. Um, yeah. Uh, Alyssa, exactly, exactly. Alyssa says it really well. It's the moral reasoning, I think. There's not enough life experience for a six-year-old to say, I need to win for all time. Um, yeah, yeah, I, 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 exactly. It's not, you know, Joyce is saying, you know, isn't that what Card had in mind? We think of our children as, as innocent babes. We're unwilling to grant them the feelings and thoughts that Card puts into Ender's head. But see, but Joyce, my problem is not that, oh, I don't think my children would ever think that. Because I remember being six, you know, and, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, I don't think I'm wearing rose-tinted glasses when I think that. It's not that I, and believe me, my experience as a parent has been, uh, if I had any illusions about the innocent minds of young children, uh, parenting has gone very far to, <laughs> to, uh, to uh, uh, you know, disenchant me of those notions. Um, I was never closer to believing in the doctrine of total depravity until I had an infant of my own. But, um, nevertheless, uh, it's, so to me it's not that. It's 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 exactly as as Alyssa says that the, the the kinds of thought processes not they not like would this idea ever occur to them or but um, 
the the moral reasoning is a good way to uh, to to describe it. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I just, like I said, I'm I'm perfectly I'm perfectly willing to 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 go along. I'm I'm a good suspender of disbelief. It's okay. I might be wrong, but I definitely have a, a hard time. Um, it requires a lot of suspension of belief on my part. So therefore, when in the film they make the choice, and again I agree with the practical. You know, again, and Neil is again pointing, thinking of the practical difficulties of doing this on screen. Um, finding a, a a group of really young actors that would be, you know, to, to find a team of like seven, eight year old actors who could carry those scenes. Um, would be really, really challenging. I agree. It absolutely would. Not to mention the fact, think how much harder that would be to see. Um, and it's something that's, because you know, there's a difference, right? There's a difference between reading about what Ender does to Stilson. It's already disturbing enough, right? You, you can actually see a visual image like they did in the trial, right? In Graf's trial. Um, a visual image of one six-year-old boy kicking another six-year-old boy to death. Um. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I um. Uh, I have a. It's it's it doesn't surprise me that even. You know, sort of the practical challenges aside, it doesn't surprise me they decided not to go that way. Of course, it also enabled them to. And I totally called. By the way, I absolutely. Nailed my prediction that they were going to introduce uh, uh, like Ender Petra uh, uh, sexual tension plot. Totally knew that was going to happen, um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Kate, you're right. Kate is reminding me of this, which I which I knew, but had almost forgotten about. It, Orson Scott Card was really, really firm on the age of the actors. Um, in fact, it was the thing, he explains this in, in his uh, commentary at the end of the, the audiobook, he explains that people had been proposing to do film versions of Ender's Game for, for years, um, but it never happened. And the reason it didn't happen is that they always wanted to shift Ender's age forward. They always wanted to make Ender 16. Um, and he absolutely insisted that it was going to be, it was going to be, um, he, he, he couldn't be any older than 12. They couldn't cast anyone older than 12 for Ender's role. And he would not agree to give anybody the rights to do the film until they signed a contract promising that Ender would be 12 or under, um, because that was such an important element in the story. Uh, they seem to have pushed that, you know, and, and definitely gone on the other side of that. But, um, um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, um, but anyhow, so, um, it was, that was, um, the fact that all of the, I mean, you know, like the launch group, you know, uh, was, even, you know, did you catch the fact, you know, when, when the extremely non-maternal Dap was making his initial speech of the instructions to the launchies, uh, how he was emphasizing, how firmly it was emphasized that, like, you know, the, the boys go here and the girls go here and anyone who's caught in the place of, 
completely opposite from the book, right? Where Ender's like, why are you making any difference between boys and girls? You're just dividing the army, right? Um, um, it's a weakness. Well, again, when you're seven and eight, it's a little easier to do uh, than when you are the age that those launchies were. Um, uh, a little bit, uh, a little bit more, more challenging. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, Sean is disappointed that we didn't get to see Harrison Ford in a fat suit. <laughs> yes, I agree. The fact that we didn't get, uh, we didn't get Graf. Uh, getting fat, but but you know, Sean, I did 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 take your serious point as well. Graf didn't suffer as much. We didn't get as much of that. Um, I agree. I agree. I thought that that was. Um, I thought that that was uh, underdone. They kind of left behind. You know, they had in the first half of the movie much more of the um, you know Anderson and graph stuff going on there at the beginning um, but then by the end you know especially once once Mesa Rackham came in they really we, we kind of lost a lot of the behind the scenes stuff and we did not see the sort of graphs torment um, yeah yeah um, yeah there was very little um, I agree with Kay, there's very little internal uh, division. Um, yeah, the way that they kind of split the, you know, hard-nosed training and the compassion between Anderson and Graf, I think, did kind of dilute Graf's character. And in the end, <clears throat> I, I, I did think in the film made Graf's character much less interesting. And how... Um, how anticlimactic, too was the end of Graf's character, right? You know, the last thing we see being, you know, him chasing Ender off the bridge, you know, the command bridge, uh, you know, after the destruction of the planet, and him just sort of insisting, hey, we won, we won, and just not getting, at all, not really even seeming to understand Ender's reaction and what the problem was. Um, and then we never returned to him, right? Um, I thought the closure that we got from Graf's character was very much more satisfying. Um, I mean, again, it was we were already a, we're, we're already out of time. Um, you know, we didn't even get Valentine back at the end. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, Kay, I agree with you. Kay says I uh, I I loved the chance to have Ender say the way we win matters most. Um, yeah, that was a that that was an interesting line. I also liked that line, um, and uh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, again, it was I it was again, the whole thing felt so breakneck to me that I had a hard time. You know, I feel like very few ideas really got to be firmly developed. Um, and, and and again, to me, that's one of the that's one of the problems with this kind of you know, take the story structure of the whole story and cr cramp it all in, um, is we don't get that much of a that much of an opportunity. Neil, yeah, I loved Mazer bringing up the concept of speaker for the dead, um, uh, especially in connection with his uh, 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 I don't know how how do you pronounce it? Maori. Maori, I've never been quite sure how properly to pronounce that word. Um, 
but um, anyway, yeah. Uh, nevertheless, the fact that he is a Maori Islander is uh, is 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 mentioned in the book. Very little is very little attention uh, is drawn to it in the book. They did a great job, I thought, drawing attention to that because it is connected with um, the, the 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 tattoo markings um, uh, were exactly as I said in the book, traditionally attached to um, to the spirits of the dead. So it, you know, in in the book, it makes this sort of subliminal theme of. Um, um, you know the the sort of the anticipation of the uh, it's Maori. Thank you, Sharon. Um, uh, uh, this sort of this practically subliminal uh, um, uh, uh, anticipation of the speaker for the dead theme. I thought it was I thought it was really cool, um, but um, yeah, yeah, and it was great to hear him speak in a New Zealand accent also. Uh, Mazer Rackham, I mean, um, uh, that was a that was a major. They they whiffed on that in the audio book. They really should have had uh, him read in a New Zealand accent. Totally dropped the ball. Um, I um, one of the things that really one okay here. Let me give uh, 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 credit to the film. One thing that I really liked. Um, and they didn't do as much of it as I would have liked, but um, the business with the orientation, right? You know how uh, uh, you, you know in no gravity. You know the, the, one of the things that se separates Ender from the beginning is his ability to reorient himself. And we talked about that uh, in the first class, and um, you know it's obviously a big deal in Battle School and everything. Um, I liked how they handled that in the film, in particular. The way in which, you know, if you notice the the camera angles kept doing that too, where like the camera would start off a screen and then it would rotate sometimes all the way around. Um, you know, I, I really like how uh, the 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 director really kind of brought us into that whole reorientation experience. That was really really interestingly done several times. I, as I said, I felt like we kind of lost it a little bit um, when Bean says. The enemy's gate is down um, at the final exam. Not only was it not funny in the film, you know, it was just like to encourage Ender, um, but it also was kind of meaningless. Like the, you know, the whole significance of that phrase had been completely lost. Um, it was not. I didn't think it was delivered very effectively the first time either. You know, when he and Bean were like. Where should we call it? Let's see. Uh, well, we need some kind of down. Hey, and Bean is one of us who's like, hey, let's let's say the enemy's gate is down. And Ender's like, yeah, yeah, okay, that sounds like a good idea. I thought it was a little bit lame the way that that was carried out. Um, but uh, as again, I mean, we're, it was supposed to be in the film. Again, it's part of the the sort of fundamental tactical insight that 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 Ender has. Um, but um, and again, so it it really. They kept the line in the film, but it was a little disappointing uh, in, uh, in 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 the way that it was executed. Because again, I felt like they lost that theme after we left Battle School. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. And then I think I missed a topic or two. Also, um, let's see. Okay. 
Yes, Kay, I agree. That was a peculiar choice. Kay said uh, w one weakness she thought was in the final minute or two, we didn't get to hear the Bugger Queen, which meant Ender's choice uh, read more as personal penance than as a paradigm shift. Yeah, I was amazed we didn't get... I was. You know, I totally thought the whole, the whole point, you know, when Mazer Rackham was talking about his tattoos, uh, I was like, oh, yeah, Speaker for the Dead, okay. You know, we get... Like they just like set it up there so perfectly, and then riff down it at the end of the film, and I, we didn't even get the phrase again, did we? I mean, did I miss it at the end of the film? Um, but uh, but yeah, I agree, and that we never heard the Hive Queen's voice. I was waiting. I was waiting for like the 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 Queen's voice over there at the end, um, but instead, just in silence. Now you know, in some ways, I mean this. In one way, I, I kind of like that because you, know, you get the sense of the, the, the direct mind-to-mind -mind communication. Um, there's, a, there's a clumsiness of even the way that it's handled in the book, right? Um, you know, where we're told, you know, she wasn't communicating in words, but Ender sort of received it as words, like his mind translated it into words, and these are the words that it, you know, so then this is what she said in his mind, though not in these... I mean, it's a, there, there was some awkwardness to that, even in the book, um, because, like, how can you convey in print, you know, mind-to-mind -mind communication? Um, the fact that they don't write books is part of the thing that differentiates them. Um, but, uh, you know, whereas in film, you know, you can do that, right? You can have completely mental communication in that, in that way. But, 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 Kay, I agree. Hearing the voice of the Hive Queen, or at least him being the voice of the Hive Queen. Um, I get that was such an important element um, that uh, I, I thought it was kind of sad. Not to mention, it was kind of laughable, laughable uh, uh, sort of security on the part of IF that, like, this, like, yeah, no, we totally cleared this planet off, boy. There's nothing here on this planet. Certainly not a queen hanging out like a hundred yards from our command base. We're hundred percent sure that that's not going to happen. Um, that was uh, that was that was the, I, I thought that was that was that was a little bit funny. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, it's tough. I mean, it is tough. Um, yeah, let's see. Um, yeah. Good. Let's see. Um, okay, I'm looking back at other topics that I missed. Um, let's see. Let's. I told oh, you guys go before too long too, but I, Erica asks an excellent question. Do the themes and messages from the book carry across well in the movie? Not just thinking about the sort of, you know, we've been talking about lots of particular things. Um, but what do we think? Do the main themes and messages from the book carry across well in the movie? The whole consideration of humanity and monstrosity the movie didn't seem that interested in which I was guessing as soon as we saw 
as soon as like Peter flashed across the screen and didn't come back, I was suspecting um, that that would not be a major interest. Um, I was a little... I mean, obviously, the, 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 the way we have him, you know, sort of communing with, I still continue to call them the buggers. Um, um, that was... I'm not even sure what to make of the fact that the name was changed. Um, but um, anyway. Uh, the... And there's sort of relationship with him. But again, I was disappointed. He When he goes to command school, he's like, I haven't had a chance. I don't really know anything about them. right? I haven't, I haven't, gotten, I haven't really gotten to know them. Um, and that it was odd that they drew attention to the fact that he had not really established that connection. Um, and fascinating that they transplanted the Ansible connection between him and the Bunker Queen backwards into the fantasy game um, and had instead the bugger queen like hacking into the into the computer system in order to influence the game itself that was really interesting I I mean that was obviously a major change but I, I actually I, I was I, was, I, I like that change it was, I was really in I found that change fascinating especially because of the way it picked up on the the you know, the, the conversation that um, uh, that Graf has with the uh, that other dude, Colonel. What is his name? Mimbu, or I forget. Um, but anyway, um, they uh, um, they uh, w when they're talking about the computer program, right, and how the computer's doing things. Like we can't control it. We don't know what's going on. And so to sort of take that take that seed and suggest that actually um, it's not just the computer, it's, it's in fact being manipulated. Imbu, it was Imbu, I got it right. Hey, how about that? Um, uh, you know, I, I thought that that, you know, that was, that was really fascinating. I was delighted they did the fantasy game at all. I was glad we got the Giants drink. Um, uh, I was, I, I liked, I was, I was very interested in the fact I liked the fact that uh, they had his um, his getting past the giant's drink be like it was at that point like as soon as he uh, his mouse like burrows into the eye of the giant he gets promoted right congratulations like kick Stilson to death you get into battle school you know drill through the burrow through the eye of the giant and you get promoted uh, into an army. Um, that was that was that that was kind of it, it, it. I think what I liked about it is it placed a clear emphasis upon the giant's drink sequence, which I, I you know I, I think it has a really important uh, a, a great significance in the course of the story. Um, so the fact that they that they gave it uh, a really prominent significance is something that I really liked. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, let's see. Yeah, Chris Stevens says that he doesn't think the themes really carried over to the movie. Um, 
yeah, I agree. I mean, and you know, when I sort of sit through and I think think through the stuff that we've been talking about, most of those themes are not really there. Um, it's not that none of it. It's not that nothing from the book has been retained or none of the interests of the book have been pursued. I, Megan makes an interesting point. She says, strangely, the movie kept a lot of the themes that in the book were presented in large part by the commander conversations, the ethics of warfare, ends justifying the means, games and reality, but themes that in the book come through Ender's point of view and thought processes didn't come through in the movie. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, that... The major conflict at the end, and I mean internal conflict within Ender, um, you know, how appalled he is um, when, um, how, how appalled he is when he recognizes that he's in fact just exterminated the buggers. Um, I liked the fact that we do have that emphasis on communication. That, you know, Kay, I'm coming back to the points that you were making, really the points you're making today and following up um, the uh, points that you make in the slide that I still have up here. Um, and that is the way in which the fundamental assumptions of Karl Graf and the IF were wrong um, about what really needed to happen. Um, that concept, I think, does come through in the film. Um, even in that moment, that with that moment, which struck me as so odd when I when I you know was going through the when I was first going through the film, um, of um, you know when Ender's like, hey, but uh, I haven't done my thing where I like get to know the enemy yet. Uh, I don't really understand the buggers, um, and that I think once we get to the end of the film, that that moment really jumps out. Like, hey, actually, maybe if he hadn't been so rushed, maybe he would have recognized. Maybe he would have communicated sooner. Maybe he would have found the queen, you know, the queen that was living, like, you know, 100 yards away um, earlier, right? Um, maybe before they blew up the planet. Um, so uh, I think that that's... That, that that's, that's that's kind of interesting, and that does seem to be, you know, that sort of that that contact and communication again. Not Ender as speaker for the dead, um, but uh, you know, the, the that sort of recognition of everything that we've been done has been done under false pretenses, and that's the th I thought the effective use they made of the revelation of the game to Ender at the end, that like. In fact, you've done all this under false pretenses. All of this has been done under false pretenses. We should just have been communicating from the beginning or attempting to communicate. Um, so, um, anyway, I thought that that was... You know, that, 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 that's why I think there are some ways in which that lines up with... I mean, of course, one of the problems is the book says so much more than the film does. And it's not that I think that films are incapable of saying a lot or of conveying complex ideas or of investigating you know, really interesting things, but they're so darn short. <laughs> it's always the problem I have with films. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, okay, let's see. Um, yeah, Gerald... 
Joe Michael makes a, a really interesting point here. He says, Ender seems totally indifferent to the human casualties in the last battle, while Graf seems very bothered that Ender left the transports defenseless. This is the opposite of their reactions in the book. Graf is happy for the victory, and Ender is appalled that he was directing people to die. Yeah, you know, Gerald, that was something I, I think I would have to watch the movie again to try to understand it better. Um, because again, you know, the, it's one of the problems that I that I'm conscious of having when I watch a film adaptation of a book, as especially the first time, really the first few times, it's hard for me to get the book out of my head, right? So I'm so continually comparing and contrasting in my head what's happening on screen and what ha that it's hard for me just to ex just to take what's going on on screen on its own terms. Um, so, for instance, Gerald, I'm coming back around to your point here. The reaction on the observation deck to the final battle was puzzling. You know, you have um, the. I was waiting for them to go crazy, right? They don't go crazy when it happens. You know, they're all like, oh, you know, they're all like, they're looking all disapproving, and then eventually they deign to like do a golf clap, right? Um, I was like, where's the, like, dropping down on their knees on the floor, right? Those don't look like people that just won a war, right? They just saw their deliverance against all odds. Again, in this, as far as they understand, you know, they, you know, they believe that against all odds, they thought it was absolutely impossible, and yet Ender has succeeded in, in doing the thing that was required to destroy the bugger menace for once and for, I mean... And then um, they don't, you know, they're just standing there stoically. And Gerald and I agree. They seem just to be really upset with the fact that he, like, trashed the whole fleet in the process of doing this, um, as if they didn't recognize even that, uh, um, that it was the only way that it could, that they could possibly win. Um, Again, as you say, the, the reactions were, were opposite. And I didn't know how to parse that. I was having a really hard time with that. Um, um, especially since I felt the element that was lost more than any other, the element that was lost in the, um, in the film version of the final battle was Ender's sense of defiance Right, you know that like, oh man, this this is a stupid game. This game is rigged, right? I quit. That whole my teacher is my enemy thing. We got the speech from Mazer Rackham, but it, it wasn't connected with much else other than, you know, the fact like, oh, you know, they're 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 uh, they're deceiving you, right? Um, and the way in which Ender is lined up against Graf and Rackham at the end, and with you know the Bugger Queen. Um, so you know, and as you can say in that sense, it did pick up on that, though. That's so much slighter, um, a, you know, a development of the idea than it was in the book. But you know, what can you do? Anyhow, anyway, point is um, that you know, the fact that Ender only did it because he was basically throwing in the towel. You know, the fact that Ender won the game, the fact that he only blew up the planet because he was, a, he was basically, it was, it was like the equivalent of, give, of giving up. I'm going to go out with style, like he said in battle school, right? Um, 
fine. You know, I'll, I'll, if you're going to cheat, I'll win at your game by cheating, and then, like, we'll just throw the whole game out the window. Um, again, part of the poignant, poignant tragedy is to realize not just this thing that he did and but thought wasn't serious, but rather this thing that he didn't even do seriously, right? You know, it's not even just that he thought it was a game. It was a game which, at that moment, he wasn't even taking particularly seriously, right? And to realize that then, in that moment, not just in the moment that you were playing a game, but in the moment that you were trying to throw a game, right? A moment that you were tossing off, like the moment when you were quitting a game, um, was a moment that was real, right? That's... Um, um, that's that's the horror. That's that's where where the real horror of that moment comes through. The way it's depicted, the way it was depicted, the way the final battle was depicted on screen, it was really intense, right? And even the fact that Ender responds by like lifting his hands in the air is like, yeah, I won. It's like, no, wait a second. I mean, again, you can see how you know his jubilation turns to horror, and you know that was done okay, but. Um, but uh, but it didn't have the power of the tragedy of I mean, again we it didn't look like they thought it was a game right the difference between what they were doing and reality was much less than it was in the book and that I thought was 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 what made it hard for me to uh, um, um, was what made it hard for me to 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 have anything like the same kind of reaction. Um, to that. But anyway, okay, let's see. I'm just looking at some of your comments here. Um, interesting. Kate says, uh, I thought that the odd reaction, that is the, the, the initial silence followed by the golf clap, I, I guess, um, of the you know the higher-ups, was meant to reflect the part of the book where government leaders start to worry about having Ender around. Um, yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, it's like, okay, on the one hand we won, but on the other hand, whoa, this guy is uh, dangerous. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Justin says they didn't apply the same pressure to movie enders they did to book ender. Well, they they said that they did, but all they did was say it, right? We had those speeches about we're really sleep to trust us. We're really sleep deprived, right? But again, it's it's the consequence of of doing that in such a in such a compressed fashion as they did, right? They could say they were really they didn't act particularly sleep deprived, even in the battle that they lost. And Neil, you had commented about this before. Um, the fact that Ender loses a battle, right? That was a big deal. I agree. That was a big deal. But again, see, you know, and thinking about that one, I was like, you know, in the end, I don't think that was as big a deviation as it seemed. I mean, it would have been a big deal to the book Ender to have lost, actually lost a battle. But, um, but again, when, when I thought about it, and I thought about the parallel scene in the book, you know, that battle that they almost lost but didn't lose, um, but it was still a really big deal that they took as many losses as they did and came so close to losing, especially since they were giving that battle like 20 seconds of screen time or 30 seconds of screen time. It would have been hard to convey that fact, like 
we have screwed up somewhat and we did not win as cleanly as we would like to and it's per perhaps a bad sign it was much easier to flash up a big red mission fail mission fail on the screen uh, in order to convey okay no like we're slipping um, that seemed to be what they were I mean again like I, I felt that it had a similar effect um, to the scene in the book but it was um, Sort of on. I I I I I also lamented the loss of Ender's perfect record, Neil. Um, interesting. Yeah, Alyssa says the seriousness on the observation deck might substitute for some of Graf's torments in cueing the audience to consider that uh, what they're doing is morally ambiguous. Um, yeah, 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 um, yeah. Um, Yeah, maybe, maybe. See, like I say, I, I'm open. I'm open to it. I'd, I'd have to, I'd have to watch the film a couple more times. I think before I could feel really comfortable in understanding how that was really interacting with the rest of the story as the film is depicting it. I was again, my head was, you know, watching it. Um, my head was so full of the differences between that and the book that uh, I'm sure I wasn't quite giving it a fair shake, but, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and Neil, no, I did not get a chance to watch the deleted scenes, actually, um, I'd like to go back and do that, but I didn't get a chance to do that, um, yeah, yeah, Justin says the final battle is supposed to be his breaking point, utter exhaustion with the teacher's games. Yeah, Justin, even the fact that he had to be sedated at the end, right, in order to be rendered unconscious, uh, uh, yeah, 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 I agree. That was, that was, that was, it was, they did not convey that really well. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. All right. Well, I should let you guys go. It's been uh, it's been a, a long class as usual. Um, but uh, thank you for your patience. Thank you guys for coming along with me on this journey. I feel you know this is our as our our first uh, non Tolkien book that we've talked about in the academy. I have felt um, I have felt like the Ender's Game. Uh, our Ender's Game discussion has been a great success. It's been just exactly what I was hoping for from the uh, Mythgard Academy, not just the opportunity to go through some more awesome Tolkien texts with you guys, um, but also the chance to, to kind of discover together some other awesome books that I you know, know less well than I know Tolkien. And as I have said, I've, I've not, uh, you know, not wanted to make any claims about being an expert on Ender's Game. Many of you know this book and all, and uh, you know any of you who have read them know the sequels better than I. Um, but uh, it has been a, 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 a delightful voyage of discovery together. I'm glad you were able to come on it with me. Um, and from here, we now transition to more awesome Tolkien books. Um, so again, just to remind you of the schedule, we're going to skip next week, the week after. On May 20th, we will begin the Book of Lost Tales. Um, I will try to have uh, uh, web material posted for the, the, the reading schedule for the Book of Lost Tales uh, by the end of this week, so we can, we can have that published next week. That's, that, is, that is my humble goal. Um, 
and uh, and then after that we will go through Dune. I am really excited. Uh, Dr. Sturgis told me that uh, uh, you know when she and I were chatting a little bit before we started class, and she. Uh, you know, I told her about how we're doing Dune after we're doing the Book of Lost Tales, uh, and she admitted that there was a time in her life when she, I think she was in high school uh, when she had an annual ritual of reading Dune once a year. Um, in fact, all of the early uh, uh, Dune series books. Um, so uh, she was, uh, she was, she, 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 she said basically Frank Herbert practically raised her. Um, and uh, I, I too actually discovered Dune in high school, and it was uh, it was. I'll talk about this a little bit more. It was it was a very formative book for me as well. Uh, so I'm very excited um, to talk about Dune. But uh, first, the Book of Lost Tales, um, which uh, it, you know begins something that I've kind of wanted to do for a long time. That is, I've really uh, um, been interested to have the opportunity to go through. Uh, some or hey, who knows? Maybe all of the history of Middle Earth together with you guys. Um, so I uh, very much look forward to the Book of Last Tales, Lost Tales, not Last Tales, Book of First Tales, more like it. Um, but anyway, thanks for joining us. Come back two weeks, 9:30 p.m. Eastern Time, May 20th. Uh, we will start the Book of Last, the the Book of Lost Tales about them. I gotta. I, I better go while I can still say anything coherent at all. Um, thanks very much, everybody, and I will see you again soon. Start reading Book of Lost Tales. Talk to you soon. Bye.